2: To create a listener account and in that listener account you can save episodes for later listening so you can create a kind of listening list we think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them please visit the site today
1: welcome Welcome to the the new books network Network. An interview podcast with authors writing in a diverse set of fields my name is cody skahan a student in the ma program in anthropology at the university of iceland as a leifer erickson fellow My work focuses on environmentalism in Iceland, although my interests span anywhere from critical theory, psychoanalysis, anarchism, and applying theory through praxis. Today, I'm joined by Emily Strasser. Is that, sorry, is that the correct pronunciation? Strasser, yeah. Strasser. Yeah, that's fine, yeah. Yeah, Uh, thank you. Uh, Emily Strasser is a writer based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. She received her MFA in nonfiction from the University of Minnesota. Her work has appeared in Catapult, Plowshares, Guernica. Colorado Review, The Bitter Southerner, The Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, Gulf Coast, and Tricycle, among others. And she was a presenter of the BBC podcast, The Bomb. Her essays have been named notable in Best American Essays 2016 and 2017, and nominated for a Pushcart Prize. She was the winner of the 2015 Plowshares Emerging Writers Contest, a 2016 AWP Intro Award, a 2016 Minnesota State Arts Board Artist Initiative grant, and a 2016 WK Rose Fellowship from Master College. She served as a 2018 to 2019 Olive B. O'Connor Fellow in Creative Writing at Colgate University and a 2019 McKnight Writing Fellow. Her first book, Half-Life of Secret, a memoir on the intersections of family and national secrets in the nuclear city of Oak Ridge, Tennessee, is forthcoming in April 23rd. uh, Sorry, April 2023. That's quite the impressive list of accomplishments. Um, And today we're going to focus on a uh, Half-Life of of secret, sorry, um, which you can pre-order through the University of Kentucky Press. In Half-Life of a Secret, reckoning with a hidden history, Emily Strasser exposed the toxic le- legacy, political, environmental, and personal, that forever polluted her family, a community, the nation, and the world. Sifting through archives and family memories and traveling to the deserts of Nevada and the living rooms of Hiroshima, she grapples with the far-reaching ramifications of her grandfather's work. She learns that during the three decades he spent building nuclear weapons George suffered from increasingly debilitating mental illness. Returning to Oak Ridge Strasser confronts the widespread contamination resulting from nuclear weapons production and the government's disregard for its impact on the environment and public health. She reveals the intersections between the culture of secrecy in her family and the institutionalized secrecy within the nuclear industry which persist with grave consequences to this day. Um, And just as a warning, um, ahead of time, this book does uh, does contain mentions of mental health, suicide, war, and stories from survivors of the bombing of Japan by the U.S. Um, And this discussion will likely touch on many of these topics. So if this is something you're not prepared to listen to right now, I would suggest listening to another New Books Network interview. Um, But if you stick around, this is a really interesting book. I'm sure it'll be a really interesting conversation with Emily. So thanks for joining me, Emily. Is there anything you'd like to add about yourself or the book?
3: Well, thanks so much for having me. That was a great introduction. I'm excited about our conversation.
1: All right, cool. Then we can jump right into the questions. Then, um, so my first question is um, about like kind of your motivation for writing the book. And it seems like uh, to my to my perception, this whole book is kicked, kicked off around an interest in family history, more specifically um, a photograph in a culture of secrecy that you kind of observed. Observed around this photograph. So, could you describe your interest in this photograph and what it meant to you?
3: Mm-hmm. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for that, Cody. Um, so, so what you're referring to is the photograph that actually opens the book. It's the first image in the book, which is a, a memory, a vivid memory I have from my childhood of this photograph that hung above the bed where I slept in my grandmother's house of my grandfather, who I never knew, he died before I was born, standing in front of a nuclear test, um, or I didn't know that, standing in front of a nuclear blast. Um, Now, this particular photograph, the story of it and the memory of it becomes kind of complicated in ways that I won't get into now, but if you read the book, you'll find out that there's a lot more, um, a lot of questions that come up about what this is actually showing. Um, But anyways, at the time, uh, this was never really explained to me. This wasn't something that really made sense within the context of the family I knew. I um, I went to a Quaker school growing up. Like, I don't know how much you know about Quakers, but they're pacifists. You know, I wasn't even allowed to have like squirt guns that resembled guns. They had to be like little, like dolphins or something, you know, little, just like animals. Um, we could have water fights, but they weren't supposed to resemble fights in any way. Um, we couldn't keep score at recess um, because scores keeping score was considered like a form of competitive violence so um so that was the context i was living in and so to have this glorification of violence on this wall um where i was sleeping was really wild Um, and yet kids don't necessarily or i didn't like question um what all that was about until really i was in college and i started remembering this photograph and wondering what it was, why it was there, why no one had ever really talked to me about what it meant. Um, and I knew, you know, at some point I'd heard little things like, oh, George, my grandfather, he had worked on nuclear weapons. I like sort of vaguely knew that, but it wasn't something that anyone ever like sat down and outright addressed. And so I got I got curious and I started asking questions and started digging. Um, yeah, and I guess when you speak to like, what about the culture of secrecy around this? It was a sort of mutedness. Like it wasn't that it was like a total secret. It's like hung on the wall. Right. But the sense that there wasn't anything remarkable or strange or anything that you would want to like address with a child.
1: Yeah. That's really interesting. Especially as you mentioned within the context of like being raised um, in this Quaker background and everything. And then the violence, that's really interesting um, sort of contradiction there. Um, And like kind of like you said, when you, you started off with the photograph and use this very like evocative and um, illustrative language and this kind of permeates throughout the book. Um, and it's like it's like almost you're taking along the reader along you through your investigation. Like when you find something out, it's like you're you're describing the background that led up to it and everything. And um, like we're, we're having these sort of discoveries with you in a way. So why did you think it was important or why did you want to write the book this way?
3: Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, it's funny, sometimes as a writer, I feel like dumb when asked questions about my own book, because I'm like, I don't know why I did something, I just did it, like, I guess, but I do have reasons, right? But also, there is some element of like, something just happened, right? Something I wrote, and it came out the way it came out, and I kept it that way. And it was a, an unconscious um, impulse, right? So there the element, there was an element that it was not a choice. Um, I was figuring something out as I wrote it and I wrote it to figure it out. Um, and my process of figuring it out was part of figuring it out. So that was one element. Um, but there's also like, there is a craft element and there there were times that I deliberately, you know, went in and said like, where can I pick up that through line of like my journey? Because I was hopeful at least, it's a dense book. It's got a lot of research. Um, there's a lot of history. And I think it could be really easy to get lost in that and, um, and lose interest. And so I needed to make a narrative through that history. And the most obvious narrative was like my journey to understand it and to put it together and to piece it together. I was like the guide to that history. And so um, from a craft perspective, even though I was doing it already, I needed to go back through and like pick that up and make it kind of a constant throughout the whole thing so that I wasn't just like popping in and out. Um Another thing that I think was important about that is like, I'm writing about secrets, right? So a lot of stuff is, um, I can't know, even now, even having spent years, like there's unanswered questions. And um, the value of writing about the journey is that you at least get to put your lens on the gap. You know, so you get to say, oh, I sent in this Freedom of Information after request and this is what they came back with. Or you get to say, I don't know what happened in X moment, but from the pieces I know, this is what I imagine, you know? And if you're not writing about the process as much as just what you exactly know, then there's less room to kind of creatively think about how do we address the fact that there are still gaps, that there are inconsistencies in the history, that there are things that have been redacted and stories that have been repressed, so...
1: Yeah, it does definitely seem like um the the content of the book, but also just kind of the discoveries you made and the way that you made them like does lean themselves to being uh, presented really interestingly in this way. Um, as you mentioned, like with the FOIA request and getting back nothing, and then they say, "Oh, these records were destroyed," and then you would ask, like, "Oh, when were they destroyed? Why were they destroyed?" And we can say, "Ah, we w- We know when they were destroyed, but we don't know exactly what was destroyed and everything like that." It's just. Yeah, I think that adds a lot of interesting details to it that you don't see in a lot of, like, um, maybe more, like, academic written texts, like, of this sort of nature. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. What I love about creative nonfiction, it's my <laughs> genre of choice.
1: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, and uh, how long exactly have you been interested in sort of um, Georgia's story, and, like, how long have you been um, investigating it and writing about it?
3: yeah a long long time um so the first inklings of this project started in college and of course all the words have changed um and I've learned a whole lot and the project has changed shape um but from initial inception to publication it'll be more than 10 years from first like becoming interested in the history
1: yeah and I think personally for me that like sort of how long you've been working on this really comes through with the level of detail you can provide and the, um, as you mentioned earlier, like how dense it is and how much um, really good research you do have. Um, But it does like, um, particularly, I would like to just bring attention to like the, um, the countdown chapter, um, because I I really like the way you present information in that chapter, because it's like, um, you provide like numbers about like 64 tons or something um different like or 64 pounds excuse me about the the like nuclear bomb and you have you have these numbers and information and then you have little short blurbs that provide like um can context and explain what it is but it's all really like easily explained even the phys- physics part of it is like um explained in a really really easy to understand way even if you're not familiar with the in and outs of nuclear science um so um yeah, I guess uh, what what kind of inspired you to write that way as well, like that chapter mm-hmm. in specific? Why did you want mm-hmm. to present these numbers and then say, uh, have a little short thing about it? Where did that come from?
3: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. And I'm glad that that was your experience of that chapter, um, especially the physics. I had to get a lot of physicists to read it <laughs> um, <laughs> to see how I was doing. And then and then like, you know, then you have to say less detail because people are going to get lost. So um, that was it. I wrestled with that. So I'm glad it came across as readable. Um, Yeah. So that chapter was really born out of like, it went through a couple different iterations um, like many different forms. And I guess it found that form countdown. um, I think I have a line in there where I say um, I need a new kind of arithmetic and I'm referring specifically to the primary argument used to justify the bombing is an argument of arithmetic basically, of saying like um, more people would have been killed otherwise, which um, from my research, I believe is an ahistorical argument that was largely created after the fact to justify the bombing. And I read about that in the chapter. Um, But aside from that, um, I just think it's such a, even if that weren't true, I just think the idea that you could measure an atrocity in something as simple as like number of lives, when what it causes is so great, and has so many ramifications for like the rest of the world and for the survivors, um, and what it comes out of is so complicated, just feels like such an oversimplification, you know. Um, And so I sort of I, I wanted to play with numbers in that chapter because I was like, okay, we're counting, let's count arbitrary things. So what are all the numbers that like made this bomb? Here's the number of like Congolese miners, here's the like pounds of the bomb, here's you know, the um, number of people who worked in this lab that my grandfather worked in, here's the number of people killed by firebombing, you know, here's the number of cities destroyed. Like if you're if you're gonna insist that it's a game that it's an arithmetic then like yeah, then where do you stop? Um, and in some of those sections, I think I was trying to show how like ultimately like these numbers are what we pick to count as sort of arbitrary, and and the math breaks down. Like you can't ultimately capture this reality in a game of numbers. So I guess I was like I was reacting to a common argument that that I encounter a lot um, in constructing that chapter. Yeah, and the,
1: and just to be clear, the common argument being that like the Uh, construction of the nuclear bomb and like bombing hiroshima would save and nagasaki would save more lives in the end because it would end the war sooner and less u.s lives would be lost and all of that exactly
3: Um, yeah yeah and the 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 casualty estimates of like what a land invasion would have cost are like have been vastly inflated after the fact um and i forgot the end of that sentence anyways but yes exactly what you said
1: yeah and, and um, I think you show this really well, especially with sort of your um, talking about um, not only George's life, but like the sort of after effects of um, creating nuclear warheads. But what I would like to like uh, sort of focus in on right now is the um, the like ecological legacy you talk about with Oak Ridge, because um, there's like this all of this environmental damage that is um comes from the, um, construction of the bomb, people working on it are getting cancer. And then like for many, many years to come, um, it sort of like impacts the area. Um, so like at the time, um, you speak of in the book, um, people working in Oak Ridge and everything, which was the town where your, your grandfather was working, working on the, um, uh, bomb was, um, was seen as sort of a utopia. Um, so can you, can you speak about like, why it was seen as a utopia and like why you don't, why you kind of push back against that um, sort of image of the, of Oak Ridge.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Great question. So for a little bit of context, so Oak Ridge was built in 1943. It was basically um, the land was seized from poor farmers mostly and um, built very quickly to house Um, several big nuclear facilities to help build the first atomic bomb. And it was not on any maps. It was a planned community. Um, So it was, it had to hold all of the plants and factories, but also all the people who lived there because they needed to be close to work and they needed to not be commuting and like talking to other people about their work. And so it was a really bizarre place that was created really quickly. And there was this kind of utopian idea um, among the architects and among the army who had this idea that, like, to have, like, good workers with high morale, it needed to be a pleasant place to live. It needed to have sort of some egalitarianism. Um, There was a sense, so, like, the houses were built in this, you know, certain, like, idealized neighborhood way. And um, there, at least, is a narrative about, um, like, a classlessness which ultimately kind of breaks down. Um, But a lot of people, when they talk about Oak Ridge, they talk about how people lived in the same kinds of houses. They couldn't really show wealth and, um, you know, and kids of Nobel prize winners are going to school with like kids of farmers. Um, But actually there was like a great deal of stratification. There were different kinds of houses. There was um, racial segregation that was like egregious even, in the context of the time. So like black workers were like literally fenced off from the white part of town and lived in really, really horrible conditions. Um, So, yeah, so there, there was this idea of building this kind of ideal community. And I think some white workers, particularly like young white single workers who were like having the time of their lives, probably working, you know, working a a war job that they felt was righteous. And like, there was a lot of fun recreation opportunities for young people. Um, There, there were, there was upward mobility opportunities for people who, you know, came from rural, like farming backgrounds for, you know, there were women straight out of high school who were given jobs in these factories and like made money that they wouldn't have made before and got to marry people with, you know, master's degrees, right? And all of a sudden vault themselves out of their social class and really change their lives for the better. Um, and so there's a lot of like nostalgia for that and a lot of celebration of what Oakridge allowed them. Um, but it wasn't equal. It wasn't an equal opportunity. Um, so that was the beginning of your question. Maybe I have, I was trying to give context. Now I'm trying to remember um, where we were going with that.
1: Um, that was, it was, um, like why exactly, and you, and you kind of hit at this already though, like why would exactly, it didn't live up to this sort of utopia image. So I think you answered that pretty well.
3: Okay. Okay. Cool. Thank you.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, and then, and then, yeah, just, uh, what I thought was really interesting, um, in particular when you were talking about, um, pushing against the utopia image, there was a couple of things. Um, one was like the sort of, um, the connection you make between, um, the secrecy of the city and sort of like uh, of the town and the like the function of polygraphs in deterring employees from like either union organizing of uh, defying any of the sort of strict rules and curfews and like um segregated um, communities and things like that or or spilling secrets because there was like this um sort of like you said the polygraph served as a d- deterrence and people sort of sort start of Self-policing themselves and like getting a sense of accomplishment um, from uh, passing these polygraphs of not you know you know being found to be a, a traitor or or breaking the rules or something like they were confirming themselves and there's st- this stability um, from passing the polygraphs, but then sort of as you discover in your investigations, um, your grandfather at the time was perhaps a little bit of a wild card um, and and who was kind of protected by his friends and superiors. So could you speak around like um, a little bit more detail about the culture of like maybe patriarchy and whiteness in the context of um, Oak Ridge and like the whole environment you talk about um, around World War II and like the nostalgia and everything like that?
3: Sure, yeah, there's a lot in there, (laughs) Um, but it's good. Yeah. So, so just to go back to the polygraph again, that's kind of, it's um, I used it as kind of one, one indicator of the way this culture of secrecy enforced kind of um, loyalty and conformity to the project. And so the polygraph or lie detector test, I didn't actually know what a polygraph was uh, before I started researching them. So it's a lie detector test um, was sent to Oak Ridge shortly after the end of World War II when scientists were starting to like stick their heads up and say like, what have we done? Should we do something differently? Should we like regulate nuclear weapons? Like how can we present an arms race? They were kind of like having a conscience, right? Like having a moment of conscience about this project that they've been a part of. And um, Washington, you know, House and american Activities Committees looks at them and says that's communist, like there's communist spy rings, you know, So they send down the polygraphs and they start to like enforce this culture of secrecy that, you know, that there were ways that it was enforced during the war, but it was more enforced because people actually during the war didn't even like know what they were doing. Um, for the most part, they were just like working on their one little bit. So now they kind of know what it's all about and they're just like having this moment. So they have to go back and be like, Nope, Nope. Like shut up, like fall, fall in line. Um, so as you said, um, and so one of the things that the polygraph was looking for, too, was like, um, was actually mental illness. And, um, you know, th- that could be considered a threat, one of, you know, at, in in addition to being like disloyal to the government or, or actively being a spy. And so my grandfather's kind of an interesting case, because he was an alcoholic and did struggle with mental illness, like increasingly throughout decades of his work. Um, and I have you know, found evidence that he really was kind of protected, that he um, could have been fired, but like was protected by his friends and superiors. He had been there from the beginning, and he kind of rose through the ranks until he was eventually in management. Um, And so there is like this discrepancy right between what they were trying to protect, supposedly, um, with things like the polygraph and someone like him who doesn't, um, who does have what they would call a vulnerability, you know, Um, so, yeah, I think it is an example of whiteness protecting itself and the patriarchy protecting itself. And, um, so yeah, it's like, is that when is, when is whiteness and the patriarchy at odds with quote unquote national security, you know? Um, and I think it's another example. Like we have lots of examples, right. Of where there are double standards and where, um, white people or white men in particular can get away with things that others wouldn't, um, that do threaten national security. I mean, I was thinking of like, um, if we look at January 6th, um, how are those protesters treated versus like if they had been Black Lives Matter protesters, um, protesters, I don't even want to call them protesters, those rioters. you know, um, insurrectionists, there's the word. Um, so yeah, so, so I guess like, it gets at this, um, this question of like, who is national security actually like for when we say that, you know, who is it actually protecting? Um, and yeah, that, that promise of safety, you know, is not extended to everybody equally. Um, and then at the same time, like, I do think my grandfather is while he was protected, I still think he is, Um, His trajectory shows an example of the negative impacts of the culture of secrecy, um, because I think if he had been in an environment which encouraged, say, like getting help for mental illness, he might have gotten the help he needed earlier on, and he might have um, not been in such a bad place. Um, And there was a sense, I think, I think that he and my grandmother did live with a sense that he could lose his job at any time and that that was a real fear, you know? And eventually he did, you know, he was medically retired um, from the plant. And so um, it protected him for a long time, I think. Um, And also eventually he was retired before he probably would have otherwise, um, you know, declared totally and permanently disabled by his mental illness. So it's, yeah, it's pretty complicated.
1: Yeah, it certainly is. Um, And I I think there's a a number of directions um, we could go from here. And I I think I would like to uh, sort of grab onto what you kind of said at the end, because um, in the beginning of the book, also, you kind of um, outline and and throughout the book, it's kind of this recurring um, uh, theme of your family mentioning that, like... um, you know, if you, if you have problems, reach out for help, like, you know, get treatment for it. Like, um, you have a history of mental illness in the family. And um, there's like, uh, they kind of talk about it in chemical terms as well of like, um, uh, chemical imbalances and, and those things need to be treated. Um, so I'm, I'm um, yeah, I'm just kind of curious. Also, um, like, in, in that aspect of the book, you and then, sorry, on top of that, you talk about like how when you were like talking to your family, they're kind of like, um, you know, asking you why you're pursuing this so hard, why you um, are so interested in this topic. So um, I'm wondering, like, how did that sort of affect your, um, like, will to keep on going, to keep researching into this, to keep going into it? Um, like, how much of it was that angle, do you think?
3: Hmm. You mean how much like did family pushback like it, or how much and was it me needing to understand the mental health aspect? Kind
1: of, yeah, kind of both. Yeah. Both. Okay.
3: Yeah. I mean, I definitely, I felt there was a, um, there was an intellectual and emotional curiosity around understanding, like, how does this mental illness like intersect with um, this secretive history that goes much beyond my grandfather and his work on nuclear weapons and like do they play into each other in any way um and wanting wanting to understand that and wanting um answers that didn't feel satisfying by the kind of more clinical ways that because my family was talking about mental health but again it was it was largely like okay it's medication like go to the doctor you know if, if something's wrong um whereas i do believe that like humans can be they're like I don't know what we do and how we live and what we choices we make also like affect our mental health which seems kind of obvious but like there is actually I find um sometimes a pushback in therapeutic settings to like to explanations that like your mental health like has to do with the world um I don't know if that makes sense so much. I mean, I, like, yeah, to be honestly great. I um, have been in therapy for a long time and um, have had pushback to the idea that like, oh, I'm like feeling really depressed about climate change, you know, and, and have had people be like, well, we probably should up your medications, you know, and so feeling like that wasn't a satisfying explanation um, for mental illness in my family was part of it. Um, and then the pushback is an interesting thing it was they never tried to shut it down which i'm grateful for and ultimately i think they um actually have responded in quite a lovely way which i could go more into but um but i think there was always a sense that there was more they weren't saying and when i did come out and ask directly they would give me answers you know and so there was a sense that maybe they had something that they wanted to say too. You know, and they would tell me things that we had never talked about before, but it was there, like right under the surface. Um, But there were also totally moments when I felt like I don't know, what if there's nothing to find here? What if there's no there there, you know, and I'm just on this kind of wild goose chase.
2: Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Yeah, I thought it was um like a a really good um, tool sort of that you used to encapsulate and talk about this was the um, uh, Abraham and Torix concept of the crypt, um, which you kind of talk about like this uh, having these secrets um, kind of become like generational, intergenerational, as in like the secrets or the the effect like. Um, the life experiences of your grandfather and his father and all of these kind of add up and if they're not addressed then they get put in this kind of like metaphorical crypt that goes on and um, is inherited um, in between generations and um, and then you sort of also later um, talk about this like in the context of um, the development of like um, nuclear bombs and stuff like this and w- what kind of effect is this going to have on, um, the people who are working at Oak Ridge, like their kids. And then what's, what is this going to happen for future generations? Um, so like, how did you come across the concept of the crypt? And, um, like, why do you think it's especially relevant, um, as in your, in this story?
3: Yeah. Okay. How I came across it, honestly, can't remember. I was probably just trolling around researching, um, different theories about trauma and secrecy and family secrecy and and came across it. Um, but yeah, I found it to be a really useful framework for thinking about how secrets are passed down in families and how you can be haunted by something that you didn't experience or even get explicitly told about. So that's part of like, um, they say something like, um, the crypt can affect the entire fate of family lines like haunting people for generations you know and so like the crypt is usually it's it's like an unspeakable loss it's a trauma it's a shame it's mourning that was never completed and then it's like the idea is that it's passed down um from generation to generation sort of by what people say or don't say or somatic like signals and all of these like kind of in indirect ways that then the child inherits the crypt. And so we just keep going and going and going. Um, and I, when I discovered it, it really aligned to my relation with, um, I'm like, should, should I give away all the secrets of the book? I guess we're just talking about it. Um, but I, um, like when I learned about um, my grandfather's mother's suicide and how it wasn't, it hadn't been metabolized or, processed or mourned in his family and it was this really weird moment for me when i it felt like i had always known that um and it, and it felt like i was learning it for the first time and it kind of always felt like that and even when i say it now i'm like wow what you know it's just like it brings up this feeling in me um and so that it felt like a resonant way to understand what was happening um for me and then I was curious to the framework of thinking about like that the obsessions of the next generation can be propelled by the secrets, the unresolved secrets of previous generations. I was like, well, here I am like obsessed with this circling around and around and around. Um, so, and then I was like, it's always been an important to me, like this isn't just like a family story and it's not, um, It's it's really about this much broader thing about nuclear weapons about the environment um about atrocity more broadly um and so i was really excited when i ran across um the scholar gabrielle schwab who was talking about like collective mourning and the crypt as a way of understanding like collective trauma um that's been unprocessed and she talked about it both in the sense of like the people who have been victims of violence and the perpetrators of violence and she is the child of like um of like um, German, um, people during the war and, um, sort of has, has theorized this in relation to like Nazi Germany, like how have the Germans like processed or not processed, um, their own role within Nazism, um, and so, and, and how, how does not processing or recognize, reckoning with those, um, histories of violence lead to repeated cycles of histories of violence. And so looking at the ways that our country has both, you know, specifically, as you spoke to like people who are actually nuclear workers have not reckoned with like what their work has led to. I don't think our country has ever reckoned with like what the, um, bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki actually meant. And so, um, so it, that that link made a lot of sense to me to think about, like, how has that story been kind of encrypted in our, like, national psyche as well.
1: Right, because, um, as you mentioned, although it's a family history, there's how, Oak Ridge, I think you're right, had a population of 80,000 people at one point, and um, is that right?
3: Yeah, it was, like, 80,000 were working there at one point, mm-hmm. and it was more, like, 75 were living there because some were commuting but that's a very good memory very close yeah yeah. it was a lot
1: either way that's a lot of like workers involved on this project who um although you know differing levels of connection to the to the project and differing levels of um whatever it's it's all like um you know there's a lot a lot to be unpacked there that perhaps we haven't as you said worked through as a country or, or talked about so much um and yeah, so I would just like uh, to kind of pivot from the sort of you talk about inter- gener- intergenerational like harm in the form or intergenerational um, like with the crypt of like mental um, things coming back and, again and again. Um, but also there's kind of this sort of longevity and, and inter- intergenerationalness of the ecological impact um, of Oak Ridge and um Uh, other projects um, that uh, George worked on that had an impact on the environment. So um, what I really liked is uh, when you borrow the concept of risk society, um, this is from the chapter Bombed Without a Bang. You say that um, sociologists Sherry Cable, Thomas Shriver, and uh, Tamara Mix argue that Oak Ridge is a microcosm of the risk society that has developed since World War II, a society that is as they quote, organized around the environmental hazards created by modern agricultural and industrial production technologies. Um, in such a society, the public faces toxic threats without full knowledge or consent. The antidote, the sociologists write, is the open exchange of technological information informed public debates about risk and public control of technology. So for me, it seems like the whole like, um, sort of culture of secrecy around like intergenerational family conversations and, and um, what we need to work through as uh, a country perhaps is kind of linked to the, the whole not being um, upfront about the environmental risks and environmental hazards. Um, and this might, be a, this might be a big question or a hard question to answer, but um, do you think you would have written the same book if we did not live in a risk society, if this sort of information was more publicly available?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's such a good question. Um, Right, it still would have been horrible. It still would have been a legacy to contend with. So there might have been something to write there. Um, But I think it would have been a completely different book. You know, like, if you imagine an alternate history in which, like, maybe that happened, but then there was the activism of the 90s, and they brought the environmental stuff to light. And Oak Ridge said, we are a city of science, we are going to use the best science available, we're going to, like, build a world-class environmental health clinic we're going to turn this boat around you know um then I think what you would have had there is you would have had like trust of information and that's so a, a large part of my writing about the environmental piece is actually about it becomes it is about the effects and the contamination that's there but it's also about like how it's really hard to say just how bad it is or just um how to what the impacts were and are because of the ways that the um, information has been suppressed or politicized. And so, um, so it becomes, again, it circles back to the culture of secrecy, as opposed to like the thing itself, which is the contamination itself. Um, And it becomes impossible to tell a straightforward story about it because it's wrapped up in like what people believe and what they say and what The numbers say, but the numbers are incomplete. And um, so you just have these like layers of gaps and belief and doubt and partial data or data that's, um, yeah, partial or incomplete data um, and different agencies saying different things and people saying different things. Um, So it (laughs) certainly would have had a more hopeful ending, you know, if like, I think. Um, if the contamination had happened, but the but the way it had been dealt with was more transparent, and the studies had been less like yeah, um, politically problematic.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot of implications for um, like the way we talk about nuclear energy today and conversations around nuclear energy that are very much adjacent um, to your book that you don't quite ever. Uh, you you do hit on it at some points too, um, especially when you're talking about the whole um, <clears throat> the whole time period around um, after the uh, Manhattan Project and after the bombings. Because um, like um, in the chapter lying, you talk about um, there's a new trend that began among Manhattan Project scientists, a trend that unsettled the conservative anti-communists in Washington after the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The scientists resolved to advocate for international international governance of nuclear knowledge and facilities or as a parallel group of Oak Ridge engineers at K25 put it, there's no secret to the atomic bomb. There's no effective defense. Any, any plan to control the atomic bomb must be uh, based on those facts. And then um, also you talk about like the, there's sort of this moment or a possibility of, um, of the uh, nuclear energy of the prospects of nuclear energy. Um, so do you think if um, like, like, Um, do you think transitioning to nuclear energy for um, technology for energy and not bombs was ever like a really strong possibility during these times, just based off of um, your observations? Or do you think the pull for for the deterrence and the nuclear bombs was just too strong?
3: I'm not a trained historian, and I do struggle with questions that are like speculating about what might have happened, or what was possible at a different time, um, it hasn't been my focus to figure that out. Um, I do, I think I do have some cynicism about the way that power works, and it would be pretty astonishing thing to imagine um, a country such as the U.S. like backing away from something like like a monopoly. They wanted a monopoly on nuclear weapons, right? Um at the same time, like we have been closer to the brink and farther from the brink. And there have been like there are treaties and there have been like denuclearization efforts. Um, because at some point leaders like realized our fate is wrapped up with the world's fate, you know. Having a nuclear weapon doesn't isn't just like a good thing for us, like it puts us in danger, you know, if other people have them and if we're we're willing to fight. And so um like part of what these scientists were saying was we are going to get into an arms race (laughs) and it's going to threaten the whole world, which is exactly what happened. Um, and so there have been moments when we can like sort of realize there and get there part way and, and people who've worked extremely hard, you know, to like keep us from being on that brink. And so I guess if there's like some kind of like, um, hope it's in the, in the hope, of, like, recognizing the way our fates are tied together. Um, I'm not sure if that exa- exactly answers your question. Um, it certainly doesn't answer your question about the past. Um, I think about the future, you know, I think about this with, in terms of, like, climate change, you know, can we, um, like, actually come together and turn this ship around? And to me, there is a parallel with nuclear weapons because it's, like, everybody wants to keep, like, polluting and doing their thing and, like, growing their economy in the ways that we have. Um, and like have that power but ultimately like it threatens everything you know it it threatens people at different degrees and at different speeds and in different ways it's not an equal threat um, but it's bad for everyone and so in a way we're at another crossroads of like can we realize that the fate of of everything is wrapped up in this you know I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know no. what the answer is. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. No, that's, that's a really good point. I think that's a really good way of putting it. I think, um, like it comes through really strong in the book that it's, it's, as you say, maybe, um, it, it's kind of this, um, uh, deep dive into a specific story and, and a history and to say like, to kind of, for me, it did raise a lot of, um, sort of, I guess, flags or moments about like, um, when things could have gone differently perhaps. And it's like you said, like less of a, what would happen, you know, what would be if if things had happened differently, although you do raise those questions a little bit and uh, more like rhetorically, but um, it's also about like, as you say, sort of like identifying when we come to those sort of crossroads in the future and being, I think you you do a really good job of like identifying, um, giving us the tools to identify moments when we do um reach similar moments and when like people have these like certain ways of speaking um or there's these certain discourses that we can notice and then like um realize them and then like hopefully hopefully act differently um so mm-hmm. I do appreciate that that about your book for sure yeah thank you yeah um so uh yeah and and um kind of align with that like i think it's um, maybe uh some some overlaps uh, that you could maybe speak to of um like when um when um they were trying to justify working on um the h-bomb after the uh, nuclear bombs because you talk about um uh, that it was kind of like this um after the production of the atomic bombs and after they were used then um truman like um president truman created this um Or will ask the atomic board um, for their opinions on their comments about it. Um, And like the um, Oppenheimer writing about this said, if super super bombs will work at all, there is no inherent limit to the destructive power that may be attained with them. Therefore, super bomb might become a weapon of genocide and determined not to proceed uh, to develop the super bomb we see a unique opportunity of providing by example some limitations on the totality of war and thus of limiting the fear and accusing the and arousing the hopes of mankind but um instead it, it seemed there was like this kind of effort by um media and like when you went on um Tours to the uh, atomic bomb sites in Nevada and everything like um, the test officials who say walked a fine line between cultivating the fear necessary for the public to accept nuclear testing and normalizing the hazards to a sewage concerns about safety. Um, and then you say exposure to radiation was compared to sunburn. The sun, the sun will give you a pleasant suntan, but if you're overexposed, it can burn the sin, skin and make you quite sick. Um, and this kind of seems similar to the discourses um, you, you were talking about with the um uh indigenous tribes being um contaminated um their fish being contaminated the water being contaminated and we can kind of um to me this kind of evokes um uh, so many instances of climate change and pollution affecting the environment and affecting people but attempts to downplay it so it was this i'm sure this was pretty purposeful to make those kind of implicit connections would you mm-hmm. say
3: you mean connections between between climate change and and the bomb or maybe i missed
1: yeah kind of oh, the damn. the whole like the whole culture around the um the how we talked about and encouraged the development of the bomb and then how we maybe today encourage the development or like the continued fracking and and um, mm-hmm. the continued mm-hmm. use yeah. of oil and things like that
3: yeah and, that's interesting sorry did i were you I oh i you was off? just
1: no no you're fine i was just wondering um like how purposeful was that? And, um, if you had anything to add about that?
3: I mean, I wouldn't say I was making a purposeful parallel, except that I do. I mean, I feel like nuclear weapons are still an existential threat and obviously we're on a, we're in a more precarious place now than we like were even a year ago with, um, with what's going on with Ukraine. But, um, But climate change kind of feels like the real big one for me these days, you know, the really, really threatening one, especially because it's like with nuclear weapons, you either like, well, it's not as simple as you use them or you don't, because even producing them and having them creates its own problems. But the worst things happen when you use them, whereas climate change is just like, you know, a force that we may not be able to stop, right? It's ongoing. Um, so certainly that has been in the back of my mind, writing the whole book. I don't know that I was purposefully trying to build a metaphor between those two things, but I'm I'm glad to know that maybe it um, brought up some some resonances for you with what we're currently seeing, because I don't, I mean, ultimately, it's sort of funny to say this, like, having just spent like 10 years of my life writing a, a book about nuclear bombs, but I'm not like someone who's predisposed to be interested in nuclear bombs, like in particular, you know, um, it's like sort of an accident of whatever my family history, that this is the thing that I like got obsessed with. Um, but it really is about like broadly about injustice and complicity with injustice and the culture of secrecy and denial and, um, how ordinary people are involved in like extraordinary harm you know and so i think i was hoping that those things would be interesting and resonant with people who are not necessarily interested in nuclear weapons per se and that it wouldn't just feel like oh this is like about a thing that happened in the past but about a thing that happens in many ways um across our country and across our society
1: yeah yeah, I think maybe that's shaped a little bit by my own interest and biases. But I think, um, yeah, it definitely comes through it, like me focusing on climate change, but it definitely comes through a, this more universal narrative that you can apply to a variety of different contexts and does what, therefore, I think interest a wide variety of people. Um, like me, myself, have never been necessarily super interested in... Um, like nuclear weapons and and, um, World War uh, II in this time period. But it was super fascinating, um, the -hmm. story you present and the way you talk about it. And just there's so many different ways and so many different connections that can be made from this book, um, which Mm -hmm. I thought was amazing. So
3: thank you.
1: And and, um, I think it's also quite coincidental with uh, the Oppenheimer movie coming out later this year.
3: I know, I did not plan that, um, but I'm, uh, I'm excited to see it, you know, it'll be interesting.
1: Yeah, the way that they sort of um, present um, maybe some of the things you talk about in your book and and maybe how it aligns or or is different. I'm really curious to see that as well.
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm really, yeah, really interested. Mm hmm.
1: Um, but I think, uh, we would be amiss if I didn't mention, um, the Hiroshima chapter and you're visiting, um, Hiroshima. Um, and, um, like for, for one, I was like really surprised, um, how you talk about, uh, the reception of you being fit, like when you visited and and some of the facts, like, um, like the fact that you can rent, um, a survivor of the Hiroshima bombing, uh, to tell their story. Um, and then, um, that's the language they used to talk about it, um, Printing, and then um, the way that they treat US visitors, especially those with links to people involved um, in the bombing of Hiroshima. So, um, what do you think for you was the most striking part uh, yeah. about visiting Hiroshima?
3: Yeah, I mean, definitely those things that you mentioned um, were really surprising to me. So, um, yeah, what, what you're referring to for people who haven't read the book is um, like there's a system in place to um, pay for interviews with. Um, atomic bomb survivors and it's like I don't want to paint it in a in a solely negative light like I do think there's a kind of like labor you know in them there's a huge amount of labor in them telling these stories and like to to have a compensation I don't begrudge them that at all but this whole system of like you know I went to the basement of the museum and they asked me what kind of hibakusha I wanted hibakusha is the Japanese term for um for the um, atomic bomb survivors, you know, and they asked me, do you want like a mother daughter pair? Do you want like um, a school, ch- someone who is a school child or like, what kind do you want? And then, um, and then you pay the fee. And so just like, it, I guess it was the fact that it was made so convenient for someone like me who came in knowing no one, not speaking Japanese, you know, um, to, to, like access these people and their stories. Um, and it played into this, this broader, I mean, so, yeah. So you you referenced how I was received as like the granddaughter of somebody who worked on the bomb, um, which was like, with a lot of like, um, very kind welcome. I mean, everybody was very generous and welcoming. And also, I I felt kind of, I started to feel pretty uncomfortable because I felt like somehow, not intending to, but somehow my presence and my being there was like asking something of them, was like asking for their forgiveness or asking them to like be nice to me. Um, And I wasn't sure if there was room, much room in the like narrative that has been um, sort of built up there for them to like not forgive me, you know, or not be um, welcoming. And so in the end, it sort of felt like there was a lot around the official peace culture in Hiroshima that was designed to make someone like me, like comfortable, which I found rather unsettling. You know, I thought this should be a place to make me deeply uncomfortable, you know, Um, and certainly it's not any kind of monolith. And there's, I only spoke to the people I spoke to, and I only spoke to the hibakusha who were like giving interviews in that way. And so it's, there's no kind of scientific, like, you know um sample here i i'm not trying to say anything definitive but my experience was was one of feeling sort of catered to in a way that um was really strange um and you know i'll just say like uh everyone i met was so kind and lovely and um it's a beautiful city it's a beautiful thriving city there's a lot of important peace work that happens there there's a lot of important activism that happens there too you know and um So what I write about in the book is one piece of that and one piece of like how I was received as who I am and with my history. Um, But Like any place, it's complicated and I couldn't access all of it. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Thank you for that. Um, And is there anything else you would like to add about the book um, before we wrap up or like what are you do you have any plans um, about what you're going to write um, next?
3: you know, that's a great question. Um, I have been working on this book for so long that I'm actually really excited to not know what my next book is. Um, just to like write shorter things and kind of explore to see what's interesting without it having to fit into something bigger. Um, so I'm working on essays here and there. I've certainly, climate change is a big like, um, preoccupation of mine. So I, I have, um, bits and pieces about that and hope that I'll be able to write something about that um, in some form, but I don't have like one overarching project at this point in this moment.
1: So you could say, sorry, sorry for this, but you could say there's a culture of secrecy around your future and what you want to write about next. There we go. Right. Yeah,
3: That's that's the way of being like, of cloaking the fact that I have no plans (laughs) (laughs) that I'm actually lost. I'm just like, Nope, there's a, we're really keeping that under wraps for security purposes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I like that way of looking at it. That's that's true about my future as well.
3: <laughs> okay. Yeah. Great. <right. laughs>
1: um, but yeah, thanks for joining me, uh, Emily Strasser, once again, and uh, thank you for tuning into the New Books Network podcast, everyone. Um, make sure to check out Emily's book, Half Life of Secret, which you can pre-order now through the University of Kentucky Press. Um, and this is your host, Cody Skahan, signing off for now